Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there is always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2022 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. It's great to have Matt Cater of the Win Hockey Agency in Boston uh, joining us for what we know is going to be a comprehensive conversation. So, Matt, again, thank you f- so much for coming down to the studio here in Milton and joining us. I appreciate it very much. I've enjoyed uh, your coverage over the years and seeing you around the rinks. Yeah, we have seen each other quite a bit. And you know what? I'm grateful for the opportunity to have hockey to see, especially after the year that we had with the disruptions and COVID and the pandemic. And obviously you want to be safe, but these kids also need to be able to develop. These players have to develop and they have to grow. And so it's been great. Uh, just out of curiosity, what have you seen this year? And, and, and how is the hockey looking to you at the, at the local levels? Well, I, I think from... The game itself, it's just smoother to watch because there's more practice, more games, uh, more certainty. But the kids are having more fun. Hockey's supposed to be fun. And when there's uncertainty like there was last year, that's not any fun for the kids. So I just think it's more energy uh, around the games. Everything's just been uh, a lot more enjoyable. And I think there's more development going on because of practice and games and everything else. So let's get into it. Let's turn back the hands of time and and talk about your background how you got started and your love of hockey you're an advisor but you've been around the game in a lot of different capacities from player to 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 scout and developer to to now you're advising some of the the biggest names in hockey and uh, some some pretty impressive up-and-comers so how did you catch the bug well, it, the bug was caught, and uh, we were living in Philadelphia. My father's in education. He's been the headmaster of every school I've been to. So he was at Chestnut Hill Academy in Philadelphia, and back then the Flyers were winning Stanley Cups in 74 and 75. So I remember dancing in the streets, and my squirt and peewee goalie back then was Mike Richter, future oh, Hall wow. of Famer. Yeah. <laughs> and, there's uh, a name drop. I absolutely hated the Bruins, hated the Bruins with a passion, and then in 1979, my father became headmaster at Pomfret School in Connecticut, hence my love for prep school and prep school hockey. And all of a sudden, I started shifting to the Bruins. And anyway, went to Trinity College. I played four years there and then played in Sweden for a year. Came back, and before I went to Sweden, I was playing summer leagues, that Thursday night summer league down in Quincy with all the knuckleheads down there. And I got to know a lot of people around the hockey world there. One guy in particular, Joe Lyons, who was the Bruins scout at the time. And he was running a, a, kind of a precursor, I guess, to the Lovell Masters 
you know, empires now. You know, he ran this pro elite hockey leagues, camps, and tournaments. So he saw something in me and gave me a chance to help him run those leagues, camps, and tournaments. And when I got back from Sweden, he helped get me a job as a uh, part-time scout making $6,000 a year with the St. Louis Blues. So I was 23 years old and had the opportunity, a little opening in the door. And my, you know, my father wasn't an NHL general manager. I wasn't an NHL player. I basically didn't know anyone. And I saw this little opening and just worked. And I've just been grinding ever since. So you understood at an early age, being around the game, the importance of hard work. And that's certainly at this level, the guys that, that put in the work, whether you're a player, whether you're a coach, an advisor, they're the ones that really are going to rise to the top. Well, you have to go to games. Like, uh, nothing drives me more crazy when I see adv- advisors and agents who get players and then they don't, never go see them play. You know, you, you have to see them play. And I, I find that whenever I go to a game, I learn something new. I can't sit still at a game. I walk around, I'm talking to people, I'm learning about different backstories on players. When I was a scout, it was all about gathering information. And even now as an agent, if I'm going to invest time and energy in a player, I want to know all about him. I want to know his parents, I want to know his background, what kind of person he is, what kind of character he has. So when I go to games, I'm gathering information. I, I love it. I love the people. So for eight years, when I was scouting for St. Louis, I was basically traveling the world and ended up going all over Europe, Moscow to Saskatchewan to Quebec to Sioux Falls to all over the place and met everybody, built a great network of people. A lot of the people that were scout center, general managers now. And I kind of have kind of lived off that network, if you may, and learned the game from the bottom up. And for me, it was, it was just a you know, a great experience that way. I was lucky with St. Louis. I had great mentors. The great Ron Caron, the professor, hired me. And his scouting director, Ted Hampson, I was a preppy kid from Boston. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, allowing me in their old school Canadian ways. And they allowed me to get an education. I went and got a master's in sport management at, at UMass Amherst, did a year of grad work at Harvard, and even helped bring the World Junior Tournament to Boston in 97, which was a great experience for me. And I think after 97, after that World Juniors, I kind of sat back and was like, you know, I'm 31, my family's growing, I, I want to get more into the business of the game. And the only thing I could find that kind of balanced out that business, the hockey side of things, and my education was the agent business. But the problem was I hated agents. And in some ways I still do, but that's all another story. But I I just got in the business, started with a small firm, and ended up going off on my own eventually. And I've just been doing it ever since. It checked a lot of boxes for me in terms of people, in terms of uh, player and personal development, helping people. My father was a, again, headmaster. My mom was an English teacher. So for them, it was about personal development. And I, I I take those same values now. We're not here to help just hockey. We're here with personal on and off ice development, which I take really seriously. That's why education is so important to me. That's a great point. And, you know, in others, you're not going to, Network, you're not going to get to know who a player is and, and what makes them tick by watching streams and developing spreadsheets and things like that. That is that is important, but I think, you know, when people talk about, well, you know, analytics versus the eye test and all, part of the whole eye test is being in the rink, seeing what happens away from the play, and then, you know, rubbing elbows with the other people that are there. And like you said, you'll learn something new every day. You do, and, and if you're going to understand the pathways that your players are going to take, you have to understand the different 
options that players will have. You ha- you need to know what the culture is like at the national program. You need to know what every USHL team's culture is like and how they've treated players in the back to make decisions. You need to know the values and beliefs of the local prep school coaches and what places work and what places don't. And our job as advisors when they're younger is to find them a pathway that works for them and that every kid's pathway is differently. And that's part of the problem we have here is it's a bit of an arms race between what the parents' expectations are and wanting to keep up with the Joneses versus every kid's different. Some kids, they need four years of of high school and four years of college. Others don't. Chris Kreider did three years of high school and three years of college because he was ready. And it wasn't until he won a national championship that he turned pro. There's no rush, you know, and I, I tell all my clients that, you know, don't be in a rush. Everyone's different. You have your own journey. And you know, there's just a lot of pressure on different factors these days, whether it be social media or parents and the external gratification of being the first one there. The idea is not to be the first one there. The idea is to stay the longest. I've, I've learned through my journey, you know, the perspective. And how do you, when you're dealing with players and parents that are maybe spending more time looking at what everyone else is doing and it's just inevitable people just you naturally try to compare your situation to others how do you try to manage that you have to tell them to take a foot off the accelerator you have to tell them to say look inward look at your child first and what he needs don't look at what everyone else is doing get off of social media don't read the the lists and the stuff that comes out a lot of it's just generated by you know people sitting in their basement just throwing out opinions you can't look at what everyone else is doing you have to trust the process of what you're going and listen to advice from people you trust you know people that are going to care about you and that want what's best for you and your kid in the future and I think a lot of parents get caught up into the external gratification of their kid scoring a goal or committing at too young an age to college and and not understanding it's a journey not a race, and that your kid will get there down the road if you teach them the right values and the right beliefs and if you have the right habits. You said an important word, process. And the process is, is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But let's, let's talk about one of the most notable names in hockey, someone you know very well, mm-hmm. Zdeno Chara, Hara. I think in, in Slovak it's Hara. You have known him for years. You've advised him. And I can think of no better example for the listenership, the audience to hear about because uh, his story, he was anything but a sure thing. And he came out of a draft that was quote unquote weak and shallow. And yet he's gone down as, as one of the greatest players in NHL history. So in 97 was my final year scouting with St. Louis. And we were out I think we were in Bratislava. I was driving around with Joe Yanetti, famous name from the past, and a bunch of other scouts. And we ended up drafting Michael Hanzus in the fourth round, which worked out great. He had a great over a thousand game NHL career. He's the one I focused in. I really liked Michael, but I kept hearing about this mythical figure of Zdeno Chara, six foot nine giant, but no one saw him that year. I think when the Islanders took him, it was based basically on tape. You right. know. That's the story, the and, VHS tape. Yeah, and we knew about him, too. He was on our list, but we couldn't pull the trigger because we hadn't seen him live. So he gets drafted, and I didn't know him then. I, I, I picked him up like a year or two later after his junior career. But my impression of Z is that he decided to come over here, and he had a chip on his shoulder, and he was going to prove everyone wrong. You know, he got cut from his junior team at 16. Well, he's still, to this day is driven by just that alone. That's all he needs. Kind of like Brady, you know, you get the chip on your shoulder. 
And he basically, literally, has just made himself into a player. He was working out two or three times a day when I met him. He was a stay-home defenseman off the glass who would fight people. He was with the Islanders one of his first, in his first year, partial year with the Islanders. He was looking for an agent. And he called me up one day, and I said, okay, what are you doing for lunch the next day? You know, like I, I knew about this guy back from his draft year, and I was lucky enough to go down, and we started working together. And he's just a fascinating guy who is, you know, addicted to the process of getting better each and every day and mastering his craft. Okay, he made himself into a player with all of his hard work. He maximized every asset he had. He maximized it to the nth degree through hard work, through process, through not getting too far ahead of himself, through realizing what he was as a player and a person, the journey he was on. And, you know, just basically did a great job at, at, at doing that, and he evolved. You know, he got traded from the Islanders, and that was a great thing for him at the time. And I was excited because back then – Ottawa was playing more of a possession game where they were, I told them, I said, they're gonna, you're going to play with high skill level players. They're not going to tell you to throw it off the glass and out, which I think is gross hockey. I want, I like puck possession. And he, he went up there and his skills developed. He was still developing at 25, 26. You know, I, say, I remind NHL players that you can keep getting better in your mid years. You can keep going, you know, you just got to stay with it and keep developing. And, you know, and then Z became a free agent, and I was based here, so everyone was, you know, accused me of just steering him here. But no, he was he was looking at New York, he was looking at L.A., but in the end, Boston made the most sense. He's he's a Boston guy, you know, right. and he just kind of took off here. And the you know, I I give a lot of credit to Bergeron and Z, both of them, because they created a culture of accountability, a culture of excellence, a culture of not settling for a second best in any way and and held guys accountable the right way and, and a lot of it is with Bergie and Z working as a team and it was it's just been a fun ride all the way along and you know people ask why did he keep playing he, he just plays because he loves it you know and and you know it's kind of like Brady in some ways he hasn't won seven championships but in terms of being older and you know dedicating his you know mastering his craft but also dedicating his lifestyle around getting better every day in terms of his diet you know, in terms of his uh, workout schedule, hydration, kind of everything. Strikes me as the kind of guy that to, says, when it's done, it's going to be done, and there'll be no regrets, and there'll be no what-ifs. Maybe, you know, did I have more to give? Did I have more to offer? When he walks away, that'll be it? And when he walks away, he's got a great family. Obviously, it's going to keep him busy. You know, he's bought a house out in Metro West, kind of near me, a little scary. i got to deal with this guy for another whatever years. But we'll have a, we have a lot of fun together. But, yeah, he bought a house. He's settled his family. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what he ends up doing post-playing. I, I want him to play till he's 55, and let's keep her going here. When did it really click for you? I mean, you've been, you've been around him a long time and early in his NHL career. And I remember, you know, everyone was really fixated on the size because we just had never had a, an NHL player of that height, that reach, you know, the, the condor-like wingspan. But as you said, there was a progression where he he understood there there was more to it. He had to add more skill, and but he's always just been a terrific defender yeah. and a character. You know, you know he leads by example. He may he may not be a rah rah guy, but he doesn't have to be because he forces that accountability. I think where he really came into himself was year two or three with Boston. I think year one the team wasn't very good. He was captain for the first time. I think he was trying to do too much. I think him being a captain at that time was the best thing for him because he, he grew in, it helped him grow as a person, it helped him grow as a player, 
And to have a guy like Bergeron was special. You have two potential Hall of Famers, you know, leading your culture of your team. That's where he really blossomed was here. And, you know, segueing to other players, I mean, I think Z's been a huge influence on a lot of younger players. And I use them a lot because, you know, our job as advisors is to give kids a roadmap for success. So, you know, I've definitely messaged to Blake Wheeler and Paul Stastny and Chris Kreider and, and Alex Kaloran, like, you know, look at this guy, look at the habits and everything else. So I think his influence has really been felt beyond just Boston. You know, I, I think it's been felt league-wide because now – People can access what he's done, and he's very willing to talk to people about it. And he's helped my clients just, and I know he's helped his teammates. And, you know, he's a, he's a, just a unique, special person. I think they both are Hall of Famers, and, you know, it'll just be a matter of, I think, certainly in Z's case, he's first ballot, and I believe Bergeron is too. And it's just a matter of when does it end for him? And then you wait that period of time, and yeah. then it's probably going to happen. They're they're tremendous. So you, know, you talked about some of your other clients. So when you have someone like like Z, who's at the end, you know, he's nearing the end, you know, at some point, and hey, hopefully he is playing till fifty five, because then oh, he can write a book with the diet, and everyone will want to read it because yeah. that's like the fountain of youth stuff. But you know, what do you, do, is there a difference in the way you you advise? your guys based on their experience levels and, and where they are in their careers? Yeah, I mean, not everyone's going to be Z, right? So, but there's habits that he has that, that players need to adapt in order to master their craft, in order to be, maximize their physical tools and mental tools. You know, I, I, I just, I use guys like, you know, examples with players and I've got three younger guys who I think are really starting to figure it out. And they, I think they look up to players and you know like I've got Adam Fox who I still you know he's a great player right now but I think he can be better you know I think there's stuff he can be doing on and off I mean off the ice especially in the summers and with diet to get better so I use Z as the example and I think Brady's a great example I'm a big believer in TB12 brand and and the method they use in terms of it you know guys like Ryan Donato and and Oliver Wallstrom they're still figuring that out. Ryan's been around a little bit longer, and he's pretty dialed in on it. But, you know, I, I just think it's good to use examples of what's worked for other players and then try to apply it to your life. And it's not for everybody, you know. I mean, but if you're going to be the best, you got to master and master your craft. You have to be all in on it. Sometimes it's it's difficult because maybe a player just doesn't know they don't know what they don't know and so things have worked well for them in the past maybe because they were at a lower level and they were able to dominate but the higher you go and this is more like especially for the younger players that are not pros that you're advising but the higher you go the more difficult it is the it, better the players are it, it is and that's when we get into the mental side okay how does a player handle adversity you know how does he handle the mental part of it because hockey's a pyramid right you know everyone's a superstar in high school or maybe even college but you're going to get kicked in the teeth eventually right? at whatever level. So how are you going to handle that? How are you going to handle that adversity? And what I've been exploring more, I think, in the last two or three years in particular, spurred on by the pandemic, is the mental side of it. The ability not to get triggered by um, outside influences, whether it's social media or a coach yelling at you. And staying is what the guy I, I work with says, higher brain. You want to stay in that higher brain where you're not affected and triggered into that lower brain type of uh, feel where you're playing fearlessly at all points. Because if, if you have a skilled defenseman who's afraid to make a play and he's playing fearful hockey, then he's not going to be what he can be. 
And I think the mental part is a huge barrier for these kids to get over, to get over the hump at certain levels. And the ones who can't handle the mental side of it and can't handle the adversity of it and who read social media too much or listen to mom and dad who go into victim mode all the time, you're not going to make it. So I think that's the big thing for young players in particular. Higher brain. Tell me more. I do have this mental performance coach, a guy by the name of Greg Poss, who's very, very good with players in terms of being in go mode all the time, not being affected by outside influences and almost creating a story in your head to keep yourself moving forward in a game. Like let's say you go out and you get scored on the first shift and the coach is yelling at you. Is that going to ruin you for the rest of the game? Or are you going to push the reset button and you're going to go out back out there and play fearless hockey? You know, it's the ability to handle that. New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast will return after this message. Do you want to skate fast? For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. If you can't wait for a clinic, join our subscription skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy-to-use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at laurastam.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-T-A-M-M dot com. Catch the Sacred Heart University Pioneers on the ice this season. The Pioneers Division I men and women's hockey programs will not disappoint. Season ticket packages and individual tickets are on sale now at sacredheartpioneers.com. And opening in 2023, Sacred Heart University's Martiri Family Arena, a brand new 122,000 square foot premier skating facility in Fairfield, Connecticut. Learn more at sacredheartpioneers.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. What are the, the impediments, the obstacles that these players are facing these days in, their, in terms of their development? Well, in terms of their development and the structure we have around here, it has evolved a lot. I, I can remember in the early 90s, how much can you bench? That was the question. Or how much beer can you drink? You know, that was the question. You know, it's, it's segued now to the point where play, led by you know, Brian McDonough at EPS and Mike Boyle with Boyle Fitness and others is a lot of these players have now become professional. I call them professional development players, professional development kids who train, 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 train like crazy. And, you know, I, but I think there's a disconnect in the summertime he, around this area in particular and around the U.S. in particular where we diverge from the Europeans. The Europeans are at a three or four to one ratio of practice to games, right? They're, they're doing it the right way. And in the summertime, spring and summers, we have tournaments every weekend. You can go win the Montreal freeze out 
you know, 4th of July, you know, way to go. That means nothing. You know, we need to lessen our tournaments, maybe do one tournament a summer, focus on the USA Hockey Qualifier, and that's it. You know, don't, don't do tournaments, just drain you. Play six games in two days. How are you going to train the rest of the week? You can't. And focus in on, on your skill development, focus in on your off-ice training, focus in on the mental stuff, focus in on the diet. But more importantly, don't overtrain either. Have that balance of not overtraining. I've got a guy who works for me, Ian Moran, who's tremendous. Ian's 600-plus games as, a, as an NHLer. He's got a great perspective on development, does a lot of skill work with the Eagles and, and, and with players individually. You know, and, and Ian would told me a story about a kid who had uh, six sheets of ice and three off-ice workouts and played in a tournament in a one-week period. Like, are you crazy? Like, you can't do that. That's just not quality. So it's about quality, not quantity. And don't overtrain, don't do the tournaments, do the right stuff and do your research, but also have fun. Like go play, you know, pick up basketball with your buddies, go play golf, you know, go do some other sports too in the spring and summer. Don't just sit there and just pound out three workouts a day like Chara did. That worked for Z, but it's not going to work for everybody. So quality over quantity, less tournaments, I think in the summertime. I look at the... You know, the other segment where I think that we're lacking in this area in here is, is the fall season. Um, I know a lot of Division One coaches that just, they don't even want to go watch the fall hockey because a lot of places, a, a lot of teams don't even practice in the, in the fall. And they just play games. and They just play tournaments. So the ratio is way down. That's why the hockey academies are becoming more and more prevalent because you can start with somebody in September and you can end in March and you know you're going to get your practices, your five practices a week and one or two games a weekend. So the practice-to-game ratio is correct. And that's why they're gaining things. And I think the prep schools do need to adapt. And I've talked to people about this. I think Cushing's adapted on a good way. I think KUA's adapted without calling it a full season. But in the end, the Hockey Academy model, and, and this is coming from a guy who's father, you know, uh, a prep school headmaster, who totally, like, three-sport athletes they want and everything else. But unfortunately, if you want to play hockey at a high level, you have to specialize a little bit more. But I still think they need to do other sports in the spring and summer. But in the fall and then the in the winter, you know, your hockey seems to be all-encompassing. And, you know, again, everyone's pathway is different. Some kids' pathway, it's going to be only playing serious hockey three months a year or four months a year, and, and they'll still make it. But everyone's different. You have to pick the pathway that works for you. Great points. I want to start with the too many games. I noticed this last summer, summer of 2021, just an unbelievable amount of activity. I moved here in June, and I couldn't keep it straight. Like I would, every every weekend, you know, from Thursday, Friday, all the way through Sunday, there was something, and it was just game after game after game. So why why if, if, if for for younger players, parents that are listening, why is that detrimental to their development? Well, it's detrimental to your development because you wear the player down. Kids end up playing more hockey in the spring and summer than they do during the regular season. But I'm talking about games, not what matters, which is the training purpose, so that you can maximize your, your effort right. and everything. And the games are... They're not structured, so they're just skating around, and a lot of times it's, it's they're, they're hockey. yeah they're incentivized to toe drag and do do the things that if you try them at the higher levels or in the more structured games they're yeah. get killed. You, you get bad habits, and right. players need to play to their identity, you know, and and that kind of gets a little bit to uncommitted players or some of these tournaments where players just want to toe drag and 
you know, put up points and do that. You get bad habits when you do that. And, and there's some bad habits in fall hockey, which is tough. And it, the kids need to get out. And it's, uh, you know, it's a hard mix. But in the end, quality over quantity is the key. And in the end, a lot of these tournaments are just so people can make money. Hockey is a business. I mean, I, you know, from personal experience, you know, being in Omaha, we would have our camps and all the teams would have their camps. And it's, it's an important moneymaker for, for the teams to drive revenue in the off season when they're not getting the gate receipts. But I would notice we would have, you would have players that would be attending multiple camps because they were, you know, chasing a roster spot or maybe they or mom and dad thought, Hey, just go to as many camps as you can and you'll have a, either a chance at making the team or you'll be better. But what we found is a kid that was on the back end of that, let's say they did four camps just to throw that out there. Well, when they're coming to us and we're the fourth camp, they're exhausted. Dead. I've helped run that summer league in Foxborough for years with Scott Harlow and Matt Harlow, Brian McDonough. It's go do one summer league game a week just for fun with the boys and get some skill work in. Other than that, train, you know, train the right way, but go do other sports too. Don't do six sheets a week and, and uh, kill yourself. I mean, do quality, not quantity. So then on the, the European influence and just the importance of the, the practicing and the ratios, where can we really benefit from maybe trying to change our culture to do more of that? And I know in the USHL, we, we practice more than we, that's one of the, the selling points of that league is the practice schedule. But why, why is that so beneficial? And where do you, like, do you have any ideas of how we could potentially? Well, I mean, you, USA hockey has been at the forefront of that. They have, you know, the ADM model, they, they've been preaching, more of the Euro style of, of practice-to-game ratios, but they can't control people putting together the Montreal freeze-out or the Las Vegas shootout or whatever else. You know, they can't, they can't, it's, it's the, it has to be policed by the parents and the players. It has to change so that we get more of that, more teaching and more more training the right way. Yeah, maybe they do their re- do some research and, and figure out the right things to go to. Yes, and, and yeah. You versus. have to, as an elite hockey player, you have to say no. You know, and I, I know a lot of the young elite players, their parents get overwhelmed by emails, playing this, playing that, play this, you know, and, and you just can't play in everything. You have to learn to say no to people. And I think that that's important. So all of this leads, you know, that every, every player, let's face it, they want to play as long as they can. They, you know, you're, you're dreaming of playing in the NHL one day. So as an advisor, the NHL draft and the process, it's, it's changed a lot from what it used to be. And, and there are more things. So, so how do you advise that, that the player that's going through the, the NHL process that, you know, to be drafted and then the things that go along with it in terms of, you know, where are you going to play after you're drafted? You go to school, how long do you stay? All of those things that have become far more important with the CBAs in place that, that drive those, those signings and such. Well, first of all, you know, the NHL draft doesn't define your career. And that's the problem we have. Even the USHL draft, like people are like, I didn't get drafted by the USHL. Who cares? 100%. It, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, in the NHL, if you don't get drafted, guess what? You'll be a free agent. So if you're a first rounder, you might get the extra look. But after the first round, you know, rounds two through seven, if anything, they just own you. They own you for four years. And then you're, you're basically stuck. You know, it's, it's almost better to not get drafted. And... You know, it's a nice pat on the back along the way if you do get drafted, but don't change the way you play. Play to your identity. Don't change the way you play just because there's scouts in the stand or college guys in the stand. In the end, it, it's it's not that big a deal. Your rights get assigned, and then that's great. 
and you get a pat along the back along the way. But, you know, I tell kids their draft year, turn off social media, turn off the rankings, you know, manage your mind and your expectations to, it doesn't matter where I am now, it's where are you, where are you going to be four or five years from now? Because that's really when it matters most if you do want to turn pro. So I think you have to put the draft in perspective. And it was also the great Tim Burke, who's the assistant general manager of the San Jose Sharks. He's a Melrose, Hall of, Melrose. Hall of Fame, UNH Hall of Famer, Mass Hockey Hall of Famer, and the Melrose Hall of Fame. Big shout out, Berkey. You know, he said to me once years ago, he goes, look at every roster of every NHL team. There's first rounders, there's third rounders, there's seventh rounders, and there's guys that aren't drafted. You know, I've got Nate Schmidt making $6 million a year in Winnipeg, and he never got drafted. His career wasn't over. It was disappointing, but he used it as fuel. You know, it, it doesn't matter, and it's hard because of so the social media has accented this even more. It's it's created. Everyone wants that external gratification of being picked and, oh, he's a draft pick or this or that, but it it really, in the end, it's what you do those, those years after. And you look at the history of those drafts. So many of the picks don't make it. They don't pan out because at the end of the day, it's not about – where you were drafted it's the real work is just beginning you know that's the that's a great first step but the real work is well that's what i say to kids when they get picked i'm like well now the work now the work begins you know let's go so let's say they've been been drafted and their their rights are owned and you've got clients that are that are in school is it is it fair to say that the cba has really changed i mean it used to be a lot of the college players would stay all four years and they would sign when it was time basically in 2008 i had a client by the name of bobby geffert all right and pittsburgh bobby went through five six years of college because you know a little academic issue at providence and we got the rule changed to four years no matter what it's four years you get picked it's four years so it's four years after your sophomore year, if it's four years, you do two years of juniors, you can do two years, and then you're free. And that rule change in 08 cut it down to four years, so I think a lot of teams are, are pulling kids out of school. It has, it's good for the player, but it can be bad, too, because players are pulling kids out of school too early because they don't want them to go to free agency. And what I tell players is, you know, they own your rights, but they don't own you. And you need to make the decision when you consult with your teammates, you can consult with your coach, of course, always involve the coach in it, but you can consult with the team where their view is for you. But in the end, you got to look within and say, is this the best thing for me? Because when you sign, you want to be as close to the NHL as possible because the American Hockey League is the jungle. People refer to it as the jungle. Having that four years is important. Some stay five. I had Alex Killorn stay five years. So it has changed, and the ability of players now to become free after four years has kind of changed the landscape. We utilize that with Blake Wheeler to make him free the year after the Gefford thing. But it's created a little bit more options, I think, for players, and I think that that's important. Major junior kids are for, go back in the draft after two years. Right. You know, European rights are owned for four years, but their rights end in, in June. In, in U.S. college, it's after your senior year, it's August 15th, which is a long way to wait. Ryan Shea, one of my clients, had to wait till that point, and they had plenty of teams waiting for him, but it's late. So the landscape's changed, the rules have changed, but in the end, you sign when you're ready. Not when uh, the team really feels you're ready is a very important thing, don't get me wrong, but in the end, the player controls when he signs. Memories of watching Ryan Shea in the UMass Boston rink when he was playing for BC. Oh, yeah. I used to watch those games. Yeah. That's good, good stuff. And, you know, that's the thing. I think you hit that you hit it earlier when you talked about the importance of doing what's right for you as a player and not looking what everyone else is doing. There's nothing wrong with staying the extra year. You'd rather be overcooked than undercooked. 
Right. Because you only get one chance to make an impression and and to enter. And you want to enter pro hockey, the working world, 100% ready. I think that's important. What have been the general, because you talked about the AHL being in jungle, so what have been your, your general experiences with some of your clients that, that have been there? It's a great development league. A lot depends on what organization you sign with, what coach you get. Every team is different. Every team has different values and beliefs, different cultures. You just want to make sure you're going in the workforce to the right organization that can develop you as a player and a person. And players have options, and I think they can exercise those options uh, when they can. Have you ever had a client that really surprised you that where maybe in your mind you thought, well, this is probably where it's going to end for him, and then they've they've exceeded oh, they, that and just gone so far beyond what you ever Yeah, imagined. I mean, Scott Darling was the one for me. Oh, yeah. please please do tell because yeah. I have an interesting I have an interesting yeah. perspective on Scott Darling. Yeah, Scott played for uh, the great Tim Whitehead up into the KUA mentor now, and I, I he had a lot of issues off the ice. We'll just leave it at that and had to leave. And I never in a million years thought he would ever hoist a Stanley cup, but I give the kid credit. You know, he took care of his off ice issues. It's well documented. Went to rehab, came out clear eyed and said, okay, what do I got to do to play in the NHL? And he just worked and started in the Southern professional hockey league, making 200 bucks a, uh, you know, a game. And I just, Kept, we just kept work together, kept getting him call-ups. Next thing you know, he's in the East Coast League, you know, cue the Rocky music. He's in the American League, and then the Blackhawks sign him, and next thing you know, he's hoisting a Stanley Cup. So, yeah, I didn't think Scott would ever make it. <laughs> wow. And he'll admit that, too. SPHL. Uh, that's, uh, I've, I've actually been in been to some of those games. I was at SPHL e-bug for Columbus Cottonmouth, so... Never got the call. I but. would love. To, can we see pictures and video of that, please? You know, I might be able to dig something. I never got the call, but uh, yeah, they would scout the beer leagues to, yeah, to yeah. see who could sort of sort of stop a puck. In my case, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but yeah, memories of watching those those games, and yeah, it's it's a great story. I, you know, the Omaha guys talked about how when Scott was was trying to 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 find his footing in junior hockey, he sent out binders, you know, selling himself, and oh yeah, you know, a lot of players will do that. And we always say, well, you know, just be careful not to try too hard. But they still talked to this day about what they got from Scott Darling. Oh, yeah. But then they said, hey, it worked out for him. Look at look at yeah. look at what ended up happening. Well, but he he had to look within. He had to create like we've talked about a system and structure to getting better every day. And he just started a little bit late. You know, I've got one client, Ron Hainsey, who I've had his since he was 15 years old. He's 41 and. Re- Retired now, not officially though. And Ronnie didn't figure it out till he was around 24, probably. You know, everyone kicks in at different points. You know, everyone has it like it gets maybe all of a sudden it turns. You know, we drafted Mike Greer 219th overall in the Blues years ago with St. Louis. And, you know, Mike was out of shape. He couldn't skate, but he always had the three H's. He had hands, hockey sense, and heart. And I think getting drafted was the best thing for him because I think it clicked in. And I think he really got himself into shape. He bought into Body by Boyle, you know, at BU, and and he took off. You know, I don't think anyone thought Mike would get to where he is, but he had that inner drive and that character. You know, it was fun watching him, you know, those years. But that's just the, the example. And, you know, I'm, I'm spewing off a little bit here elsewhere, but, you know, everyone always sits there and says, you can't skate, you can't skate. But, you know, you can always – Peter – Peter Stastny taught me years ago, he's a Hall of Fame player, he said when people were complaining about Paul's skating at the draft, he goes, Matt, skating you can work on. He goes, you can't teach 
the mind, the skill, and the drive. And if you have those three H's, the great Gary Deneen used to say, you know, Springfield Picks guy, the real mentor to me, and he called it hands, hockey, sense, and heart. You know, if you have those three H's, the rest can follow if you put the work in. You know, what's interesting is with the proliferation of skating and skills coaches and access to ice and specialization, all of that, I mean, players are, by and large, much better. They're much better skaters much and better. way more skilled than they were. So really how important then is that hands, heart, and and Well, you got to have the drive. Like you, you, you can go to as many sheets as you want. You can – sheets meaning hour-long sessions. You can – train all you want but if you don't have the inner drive and the character to do what it takes to be the best then you know your your career is going to peter out you know some and some kids try their best and they give it their shot and they're just not there either genetically or mentally or whatever but at least at least give it your best shot all the way through you know max it out as best you can so that you're not sitting there like us you know years later going i wish i had done this i wish i had done that Talent is the big part of it, and uh, that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate discriminator, right? And but for those that do have the talent, listen to this. Listen to what Matt has said, because you really so many of the players now are are advanced in their ability and their their ability to get up and down the ice and to handle pucks and all that. But you have to play the right way. As we wrap up, I would like to to, to ask you, what kind of advice would you give? not just hockey players, but maybe players that, that might know they're not going to be NHL guys and they're not going to play an ultra-high level, but they might have an interest in scouting or, or being an advisor and doing some of the same things you've done. Well, first of all, I get a lot of calls because I try to help whoever's interested. I do try to talk to people. And I tell people not to get in my business just because there's only a small portion. You can starve for years until you make make money doing it. But in terms of sports in general, you have to get education. You have to build mentors. You know, I was taught something early on about mentors. You need mentors. You need those four, five, six people that can help guide you in your career, who can give you advice, who can give you a pathway. You know, and so I, I think that that's important. I think education's important. Like I did my master's in sport management. You do one of those programs, their job is to help get you a job, you know, in, in the sport, in the sporting world. So you got to get your foot in the door someplace. Any experience is good experience, but grind. You got to grind. That's what it comes down to. Get to the rinks, be seen, talk to people, yep. you know, don't just sit in the corner and... and exactly. You got to grind. Yeah. So. I remember, I mean, I think it was St. Mark's came right over to me and the comment you made was, well, you've got a good good, good view of the ice here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just talking and you know, <laughs> gathering information about Kurt. Yeah, know. there you go. Yeah. At least I didn't see Coxie, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just... just Spend more time in the rinks, and you certainly will. Oh, right? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He loves yeah. it. He loves yeah. it. Well, again, great stuff, great information. Uh, it's been great having you in studio with us on the RinkWise podcast, Matt, and wish you the best. Until next time, we'll see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at hockeyjournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.